Hi, I'm Aileen, and just recently I became super sick. I was too ill to go out. I just moved to New York. I don't drive, and I had no one to get my meds for me. I found out my pharmacy uses Rx Delivered now, which was amazing. I downloaded the app, chatted with my pharmacist directly, and even tracked my delivery live. I couldn't believe that I got my meds same day without having to leave my home. I also felt so connected to my pharmacist. It was so easy. Rx Delivered Now is a software platform that connects pharmacies with their patients. We work hand in hand with your staff to make sure that every medication reaches its destination. We provide live support during your hours of operation and work with the tech you already have. Whether you do delivery with us internally or no delivery at all, we've got your back. To scale your business and improve your patient's experience today, podcast listeners can get a 30-day risk-free trial at get.rxdeliverednow.com slash podcast. Available anywhere in the U.S. listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs' business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system, which supports our independent community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care. First of all, Todd, thanks both for the opportunity to join you yet again and for your kind words about uh, about the work that uh, we do at the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition. Um, and, you know, to, to give you a quick synopsis of the purpose of our organization, essentially, we represent long-term care pharmacies. We represent about um, 350 long-term care pharmacies around the country that serve about a million people a day who need long-term care and who primarily live in long-term care facilities like nursing homes and assisted living communities. Uh, And our mission basically is to influence federal public policy in ways that create more opportunities for long-term care pharmacies to provide the services that people who need long-term care need regardless of where they happen to be living. That's what we're about. And one of our three strategic priority areas for our policy work focuses on essentially pushing back against the abuses that PBMs routinely uh, uh, impose uh, on pharmacies, not just long-term care pharmacies, but obviously our work focuses on that aspect of the pharmacy community. Uh, and then you asked about the bill. Um, you know, the bill has a lot to offer. It is it, it does, as you said, addresses the spread pricing concern, uh, but it also has other provisions with respect to transparency, with respect to fees that PBMs charge to pharmacies and so on. And I'm sure that we'll we'll have more discussion about all of that as we go along. What I would say, however, is that the bill is primarily focused on the relationship between the PBMs and whoever's doing the paying, the insurance company or the uh, employer, rather than as much focus as I think we would like to see 
on the relationship between the PBMs and the pharmacies and, and the impact that all of that has on the individuals, the patients, the consumers, the people who are paying for and taking the drugs. That's just a broad brush kind of sketch. And, and you know, I'd like to, I don't want to dominate the discussion here. So I'm sure as we go along, we'll tease out the, some of the specific aspects of the bill and uh, the pros and cons or benefits and, you know, continuing questions that each of those elements raises. Thank you, Alan. I'm going to bring Michael in. Thank you so much for coming and the support that you um, extend to the entire pharmacy profession through the APHA is so key. Would you kind of bring us up to date of where we are today and if there is any updates that you can share with the listeners around this legislation, as well as uh, the approach and the support of the APHA? Sure, yeah. Well, thanks, Todd. Thanks, everybody, for having us today. Um, you know, I like to do this in, in kind of how do we get here, right, before and after. Um, two years ago, uh, the PBM's Trade Association lobbyist, he received an award as one of the top lobbyists in D.C. Um, the PBMs themselves were calling themselves providers, uh, which we know is certainly not true. Um, and the Trade Association has successfully delayed a final rule called the rebate rule um, that a lot of healthcare advocates beyond even pharmacy, including many patient groups, had fought to eliminate. Um, the current safe harbor protections that are out there under federal kickback laws for quote unquote drug rebates. And they almost eliminated entirely. They delayed it till 2026. Um, the Federal Trade Commission, you know, the sole agency in charge of antitrust enforcement was really a toothless tiger. Um, stuck with two to two deadlocks on studies. Uh, we didn't have majority rule there. You know, so we're really in a tough place. Um, and what a difference what a difference two years can make, right? Um, now, the Supreme Court has ruled that states can regulate the PBMs. CMS, or Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, for payment of services under Medicare, finalized a rule that, at least on paper, um, is attempting to eliminate the retroactive direct and indirect uh, remuneration fees, or DRR fees. Um, FTC is fully staffed and set to begin investigations and potentially take more actions. Uh, Congress is stepping up oversight, and I know we're going to talk about the bill, the federal legislation today that was introduced, uh, the Pharmacy Benefit Manager Transparency Act of 2022, that's S4293, um, and that's very important. Um, and if you saw uh, the PBMs recently, before this bill was introduced, the recent Senate Commerce Committee hearing, um, for us pharmacy and patient advocates watching that, uh, the PBMs are really on the defensive, the first time in a long time. So it really kind of warms my heart um, in the pharmacy community because it's, it's really, as we mentioned before, it's not just about, you know, obviously payment reform, payment reform, and payment reform, which is what we're focused on um, and making sure that pharmacists are accurately compensated for their time. But it's really about the patients and patient access and protecting them as well. But I'm happy to get into the bill as well as the discussion goes on. Thank you for that and, and giving us um, an overview of, of your insights. It's, it's key for our listeners to really understand this. I want to go back to Alan. I want to just open up and, and there's been several bills that have been proposed, one specific on DIR fees, but coming back to this uh, bill specifically, the Pharmacy Benefit Manager Transparency Act, how do you see us as the insiders, you as an insider of having our our legislators, uh, the the Congress 
really may not understand the true impact of this. And, and I know that people are assigned to, um, you know, overseeing health regulation and transportation and things like that. But how do you get them to truly understand how this is impacting our public health? How do you get them to see the literal um, splitting of pills, not taking your medication correctly or not taking your medication at all because you cannot afford it and you could die an early death. I mean, how do you get that in front of, of people and kind of boil it down to something more un, more easy to understand throughout your years of, of, of soaking in this type of um, um, information? Do you have an easier question, Todd? <laughs> Uh, the truth of the matter is it's very difficult to, to simplify and convey such a focused message um, in, the, in the political and policy environment we operate in. And frankly, in, you know, given the level of complexity, not only in terms of PBM practices, but, you know, but the whole kind of you know, um, corporate conglomerates of which they are a part, and in many ways they are the hub that kind of drives the entire enterprise, right? Um, I think that one, you know, one of the things that is very impactful is exactly the kind of patient care stories you've just described. People who can't afford medications, people who, you know, pill split, people who don't, you know, who, who simply forego, you know, um, getting and taking prescription drugs to their detriment and not only to their detriment in terms of the quality of their lives and the quality of their healthcare, but also to the detriment of the healthcare system in that people who don't take drugs and you know that have chronic diseases are the people that end up disproportionately in the emergency rooms in hospital admissions being admitted to long-term care facilities like skilled nursing facilities and having much higher health care costs right and and i think that uh i mean i'm very encouraged by the ftc investigation of pbms that uh michael alluded to a few minutes ago because it you know as part of that investigation the FTC, you know, solicited public comments and the areas that they inquired about included some of the corporate uh, vertical integration and affiliations that I think have tremendous influence over um, the prices that, 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 that patients pay. But even more importantly, their access to medications, their timely access to medications and the quality of care and services they receive. So, you know. That's kind of a broad answer in terms of the transparency bill itself. You know, there are a variety of provisions in the bill, as you uh, mentioned, it, pro it prohibits spread pricing. But that is that I mean, to me, that is one of the less important aspects of the bill because it speaks to the relationship between whoever's doing the paying, an employer or insurance company and the PBM. And what it basically says is you PBM can't charge the employer or the, the plan, the payer more for the drug and the dispensing fee, then you're paying the pharmacy. And I'm, I'm curious about how that gets applied because generally speaking, a PBM is not charging a plan, you know, on a per drug per dispense basis and certainly, or an employer. And so how does that exactly translate? I'm not, I'm not sure, right? And I'm not sure how, how that works. And I'm not sure what the derivative effect is on consumers or on pharmacies. Okay. Second aspect of the bill prevents clawbacks. In other words, the, the PBMs can't take money back from the pharmacies. However, there are limitations on that requirement. First of all, it, it only pertains to clawbacks that are unfair, arbitrary, and deceptive. 
So if the PBM has in a contract, we reserve the right to claw back all of this money from you. And here are the reasons that we're doing it. And here, and you know, the rationale for doing so, it may not, you know, is it arbitrary? Maybe not. If it's if it's in a contract to which people agree, is it unfair? Maybe not. If it's in a contract to which people agree, is it deceptive? It's if it's disclosed, probably not. So I'm not entirely sure how that provision will play out. Obviously, the devil is in the interpretive details that rest in the hands of the regulatory agency involved, FTC, or the state attorneys general who are empowered by this bill to also pursue actions against PBMs. Right. And then there's this provision, again, that says that the PBM can't offset its losses from changes in government policy um, if, you know, by charging the pharmacies more. But again, that's if the changes are arbitrary, unfair and deceptive. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of this is going to turn on how if the statute is enacted, which is a separate question on how the regulatory agency charged with enforcing it provides interpretations, and then the degree to which PBMs will argue that they fit within the exceptions and the, the protections that are that are inherent in the bill. And if passed this prologue, we know that PBMs are quite good at trying to exploit those sorts of loopholes. So we've touched on spread pricing, and there's so much to that, uh, Michael. Um, and like I said, we could spend 12 hours talking about it, but we don't have that kind of time, so we got to speed it up. But let's shift gears to the rebate world. And that is, you know, part of this legislation would also assure, at least through the, the legal definition, that PBMs pass along 100%, which I was joyed to hear that. It's, it, it seems, you know, uh, like I'm not sure if we should be holding our breath or not, but nonetheless, 100% of the rebate to the health plan or the payers or the fully disclosed prescription drug rebates, the costs, the prices, the reimbursement, the fees. So can you elaborate on that portion of the bill too? Sure, yeah. And I mean, just to follow up on what Alan said, it looks great when you first read it, right? And you're very excited about it, but then, then you read more, right? So welcome to DC and legislation, right? But if, if you're looking at it, um, and first of all, I want to acknowledge, you know, great work by the state associations to get their legislators to introduce this bill. Advocacy is why this happens. So Senator Grassley from Iowa, long-term friend of pharmacy from Iowa, the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. Judiciary Committee has oversight and dealing, obviously, when the FTC gets through with the investigation of the PBMs. If you're really going to go after them and break them up, it's going to come from the Department of Justice. So very important that he's supportive of it and, and the lead co-sponsor. Um, Senator Cantwell as well from Washington um, as well, keeping it in the Commerce Committee, direct oversight over FTC, right? We said toothless tiger, we're trying to put some teeth on it, right, for the FTC. But great question you asked um, to follow up on what Alan said about that 100% pass-through. Well, you know, there's an exception there, right? And if you read the word exceptions, you know, in the, in the bill, um, and it says, unless you pass that on to who, and as Alan mentioned, to the health plans or the payers. Well, the health plans and the payers haven't exactly passed that on to the patients in the past, have they? Um, and the health plans hire the PBM. So, if the sole purpose of this legislation is to eliminate the harmful business practices of the PBMs, including spread pricing, clawbacks, et cetera, you know, why would you give them an exemption to continue to do that um, if they pass on all these pharmacy price concessions to the point of sale? Even so, we just had a rule from CMS su supposedly supposed to eliminate this, right? Supposed to have all those price concessions in 2024 go to the point of sale. So that's supposed to happen anyway, right? 
we have the rebate rule, which goes beyond that, that I mentioned at the beginning, right? That got delayed by the PBM Trade Association until um, 2026, I believe now. So these bills haven't taken effect yet, but they're already out there, right? And there's regulations already out there. But the legislation, I think, great first step. I love how they're going after these business practices, making them illegal, putting teeth on the FTC and the state attorneys generals, giving them more data there. Also an additional penalty of $1 million each for each, it's a civil penalty for each violation. You know, very huge, so very big stick there, I like that. But this is language that, that we wanna improve. Uh, we've expressed it uh, to the members of Congress as well. Um, we say, let's let's get rid of that exception, right? Let's, let's not have an exception there. Um, we certainly wanna encourage them to pass on 100% the point of sale. I think we're fully 100% supportive of that. But giving them an exception, to kind of continue these, you know, PBM business practices, whether it's the health plan, hiring someone else to do it or doing it themselves or payers or purchasers doing it. You know, we don't want to have that loophole kind of kind of out there. And we have been working with the sponsors. They're receptive to it. Um, and we should have some updated information in the next few days. I would mention just shortly on the timing issue. Um, we've heard, you know, we thought this was kind of the we got your back bill, right? So this is, you know, if the FTC needs any any more enforcement they don't have, and state attorneys generals need more data, and we all need more transparency, of course. You know, so it's the we got your back bill, showing them if you don't have the authority now, Congress is going to be there for you. We're going to give it to you, right? But it's moving, it's moving, so it's going to be marked up. We hear really soon in a week or two. That's that's great. I mean, that's really fast on Capitol Hill. So we're watching that right now. They're looking for one additional, I think, Republican co-sponsor, and that's going to happen. Um, so the fact that it's moving is great. The other fact is that you can improve legislation as it goes along. So that's also good. A lot of the good questions that Alan raised, we can bring them up um, during the markup. So hopefully we improve the bill though to kind of remove the exceptions and make sure that there's no loopholes out there. Yeah, if I could, if I could just um, elaborate here, uh, one point I want to make. You know, Michael, you talked about the fact that the pass through is entirely to the plans, right? Um, and and it's important to appreciate that in many cases, in a significant percentage of cases, the plan is the PBM, yeah. by which I mean the same companies own both. So for example, if you look at the largest PBM, which is Caremark, it is owned by CVS, which also owns Aetna, which has Aetna health plans, including Medicare Part D plans for Medicare beneficiaries, as well as SilverScript plans, which is the old CVS pre-Aetna merger uh, set of uh, uh, Medicare Part D uh, plans. So it is literally the case that, that this, this bill in many cases requires the PBMs to pass on 100% of manufacturer rebates to themselves. So exactly what impact does that have? So I, I, I completely agree with Michael's assessment that, you know, it is, it is effectively a loophole that could, um, you know, could, could, could swallow, it's an exception that could swallow the rule and, and needs to be uh, hopefully eliminated. Yeah, 1984, I remember when AT&T was broken up into seven different other organizations called the Baby Bells. And just that's just a trivia for everyone that these conglomerates, these enormous organizations, it can be managed. And I believe in capitalism and free markets. However, when you start involving tax uh, money in reimbursement of medications uh, for people, that's where I get into this balance that we have to do it the right way. So I think there's other things that are going to have to take place to make uh, pricing reform and drug reform and PBM reform truly work. However, what's happened just in the last you know three years has been 
an amazing step forward in all of the work that's been done. And, um, and I'm excited. I do want to talk about implementation. So once we come up with this, once there's, and I'm sure there's going to be, um, you know, follow up court cases and, you know, reporting and, and data, the pharmacy management systems, there's uh, 20 prominent systems out there. One even specifically, Alan, for senior care pharmacists. I think the algorithms and the contracts that you load and the pricing tables and everything could be controlled from a technological perspective so that we don't have to have individuals trying to you know, um, assess and make sense of everything, allowing the AI, allowing the um, algorithm to work behind the scenes based on the contracts that have been loaded. Could you talk to me about your ideas around implementation and and then, of course, oversight? And I'm going to kind of kick this over to uh, Michael first. Sure. Yeah. I mean, my only question is kind of who's writing the algorithms, right? Is, you know, hopefully it's, we're involved in that negotiation process. If you look at the, the Part D rule as well that just came out, uh, for instance, they say, well, well, you're all going to work it out, right? You're all going to work it out and negotiate this. And their answer to everything was, well, you've got till 2024. That's our answer, right? Well, the answer leaves us two more years of getting hit with DIR fees, right? We're going to get dinged that transition year between 2023 and 2024. You're going to get retroactive DIR that year. And then 2024, you have this new payment system where you get the lowest possible reimbursement. That's a terrible term, right? I don't like the term lowest possible reimbursement. You want to cover all the services um, that are covered by folks. But I certainly am, appreciate the technology aspect of it. I hope that we get there. Uh, NCPDP is working on stuff like this, but do you want it more in the medical benefit? Do you want it more in the drug benefit? How's it look in the future? You know, where are we going to go with that? And I do want to warn at this too, is uh, PBMs have been ready for this for a long time. They've been game theorying this for a long time. There are contracts out there right now with 100% pass through. There are contracts out there right now um, under the new payment system that you're going to see um, when retroactive DIR goes into effect, the, the new rule supposedly getting rid of that, um, where they've actually already determined ways to kind of get around it. We have contracts now that members have signed with PBMs, including escalator clauses, saying if we reduce DIR fees, we're just going to charge you more somewhere else. Right? So I'm in favor of technology as long as we're in a part of the conversation, <laughs> as long as we develop the algorithm, we can, there's transparency and oversight of it. Certainly appreciative of all the hard work that goes into it. Um, but we want to make sure that obviously that uh, for, for who we represent, the 300,000 nations pharmacists, um, that we're still there uh, for our communities um, in the future. And we want to make sure the doors stay open. I think part of that is being involved with this too. And I also think it's patient access. I think we're moving towards a system where we have to have, we have patient care teams anymore. Um, anyone who doesn't believe in patient care teams is kind of living in the stone ages. We need to have sharing of patient information, access to health records. Um, you know, so that's really where we're going. But I think it's a great idea. Um, I hope the technology is useful, but I can tell you right now that after we left um, kind of OMB and CMS when we were negotiating last uh, rule, you know, right after us came in the PBMs and they have, you know, 15 lobbyists and four different firms. And when I went in there, it was me and to other community pharmacist organizations and, and others, you know, so, so despite being severely kind of out, I say financed, I guess, um, as well, you know, like you said, we made a lot of progress in the last three years. It's really amazing um, going forward, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, but my only request, if we're talking about the, the technology and the algorithms is to make sure there's adequate oversight and that there's pharmacist involvement throughout the whole process. 
Alan, let's talk about implementation from your experience and understanding of what your members are communicating back to you. And once again, if I have data of a reimbursement of a specific patient that was prescribed a specific maintenance medication, they've been on it for 90 days, and all of a sudden there's a price change, we can always go back to that software system to, to, to punch out a report and having someone audit and or having somebody oversight having access to that data, I think that's key in, in moving forward with the bigger picture of reducing drug prices. Yeah, you know, um, Todd, I, I, first of all, I don't have a whole lot to add to what Michael just said, except that um, when you look at long-term care pharmacy and particularly long-term care pharmacy as it is provided in nursing facilities, it, it gets a little bit different when you get outside of federally defined long-term care facilities and into the home. But so let's just focus on federally defined long-term care facilities for a sec. The kind of access to information, including, you know, like the, the complete record, all of the pharmacy information, all of the drugs, because, you know, in a, in a retail setting, it isn't necessarily the case that the pharmacy or the pharmacist knows all of the medication somebody's taking, right? They could have had a prescription filled someplace else, you know, et cetera. In the long-term care context, that is not really the case because of the setting, the fact that the person is living in a facility which has you know, medical care and coordinated care of various kinds and nursing care and so forth and so on, including pharmacy services. So there's already kind of a template out there for how these, these services can be integrated that I'm not sure is really being viewed as a, you know, a, 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 as a meaningful input or potential starting point or uh, you know, since the process is as well along as Michael um, represented, um, you know, to kind of bring that into the mix. But to me, that's one important factor. Second important factor is, and I, you know, I couldn't agree more that pharmacy pharmacists need to be involved in creating whatever the algorithms are, applying whatever the algorithms are. Um, having said that, one, there is significantly disproportionate market capability. And Michael alluded to that. His example of the lobbyists is a good one, but that's certainly not all of it. You know, the PBMs and their corporate parents have been thinking about how to manipulate, create and manipulate whatever algorithm oriented system is used for years. Right. They're way ahead. And they also have way more resources, which just as an aside, you know, Todd raises to me a very curious question about the notion of, of a free market in the prescription drug space. Right. Because we we have as a dominant influence the Medicare Part D program, which is oriented around free market principles in theory. In practice, those free market principles essentially prevent government from setting guide rails on the behavior of plans and PBMs. OK, meanwhile, the government is paying, you know, is covering 48 million Medicare beneficiaries paying for their drugs and substantially supplementing the insurance premiums that they're paying for those drugs. So it, it really isn't a free market in any meaningful standard microeconomic sense, right? It has certain free market principles that in practice have been used to exploit pharmacies and exploit patients to the, be the financial benefit of plans and PBMs. And we should really be moving away from the notion that somehow that's a free market. And that's one of the things that really I find very compelling about the FTC as a basis for um, uh, investigating and hopefully regulating PBMs, because the FTC is not constrained by the non-interference clause of the Medicare Part D statute. 
Okay. And, and while the details are important, the implementation details are important and all that, I think it's also important to focus on the, the philosophy of how government interacts with marketplaces that got us to where we are right now. Because where we are right now is not good for patients. It's not good for consumers. It's not good for pharmacies that aren't part of, of dominant corporate conglomerates. And it's not good for pharmacists who aren't working for those dominant corporate conglomerates. And I would argue it is, it is not particularly beneficial for those pharmacists either. Go to one of your, your you know, just look at, at a retail, um, you know, a big retail uh, chain and the way that pharmacists get treated in those big retail chains. And I, I don't think you can argue that that's a particularly good environment for pharmacists to work in. So, sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> and hopefully before my nose starts bleeding, Todd, but, you, you know, but uh, um, I just I just felt it important to, to, to make that point. I think there's a direct correlation to community retail pharmacy specifically and how it's all come to a head with where PBMs, the, the major, the, the three biggest, have, have created this fast food environment to pump out as many prescriptions as possible rather than enabling the clinical professional, the, the expert in medication management, to sit down more with patients to find out what's really going on with that individual and even practice de-prescribing in some cases um, where you just said, Alan, sometimes you're picking up a prescription somewhere else and, you know, two years later you're on 17 meds and you probably could be on nine and, and it's going to take a pharmacist and titration and plan and care team to, to change that. And where's that money coming from? Well, in once again, my opinion, I think the money's there. I just don't think it's being allocated to the right experts and the right panels and the right you know people and it's all being sucked up by um those pbms based on the pricing model and based on and you know they're they're not these evil empire organizations they're it's just run amok i think it's just gotten so out of hand that you know i keep hearing from uh, one of the largest pharmacy pharmacies if not the largest without naming names that they've had record-setting you know profits through uh through the pandemic and i'm sitting back here looking at the burnout of our pharmacist and pharmacists leaving the profession um to to go start consultancies because they're burnt out and i'm like wait a second there's you know there's more to this than just the money part of it a much bigger <laughs> we're in healthcare for goodness sakes and there's no reason that you can't make money i just think it's a redistribution of the of the money that's there to assure that the services that our patients are getting that are coming from pharmacists and physician teams is the right services to get to get these people feeling better and living better rather than it just being a once again fast food environment just to pump out more prescriptions in order to make more prescription fees and it it it's going to it's going to bring us back to an older age of the practice of what the compounding pharmacists did and how pharmacists were much more involved in, in, in restructure what is community pharmacy in general. And I think, Alan, it's, 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 it's amazing to bring some of the business practices from the senior care side, which is much more consultative per patient than the community side per patient with regards to consultancy because on the senior care side consultant pharmacy is happening almost all the time with that 
issue of bed sores or some type of topical or something that's happening um, with that patient. And I think there's a lot to learn from senior care pharmacy that we can kind of back into, um, into the community environment. Where do we go from here? Because, you know, from a, from a podcaster's perspective, we're wrapping up the interview and I'm excited that you both got to participate, but I'm going to kick things back to Michael. What's the next steps and what's the shout out to our listeners? How can we get our listeners involved to continue to support legislators in their community to continue to, to show the goodness of what pharmacy is doing and, and, and where do we go from here? No, it's, it's a great question. You know, pharmacy doesn't stop, right? So there's changes, there's things going on, but pharmacy doesn't stop. Our patients need care. You know, we need to provide it. How do we, how do we keep going? How do we keep our doors open, right? I think supporting this legislation, S4293, would be a good step in the, in the right direction, but let's make sure they improve it first, right? So, so, so we're improving it first. Let's get rid of the exceptions, right? Let's get that money. Um, obviously to the patients. And that, that's all we're really arguing for in that fix. You know, like, okay, give it to the patients, right? We still need to talk about how you're going to compensate the pharmacies and pharmacists. We'll get to that, right? But let's do that. Um, FTC enforcement too, a major impact, you know, has been felt. I'd say if you weren't involved in policy as a pharmacist, at least you need to be, right? So they got 23,000 comments to the Federal Trade Commission when they put a request for information on PBMs and a competitive business practice. And if they would have kept it over, open longer, they would have gotten more, right? So, so they have all this information um, personally provided from our members um, and their patients of the, of the business practices that are, are keeping patients from getting their, their lower price medications. Um, but I definitely would encourage people to be advocates and involved with that. Um, also follow what's going on um, in DC and your state association. Our first thing we always say, is you know if you're a pharmacist join your state association that's the first step i think get to know your legislators is obviously you know pretty logical after that right they should know who you are by face by name um so you can go and talk to them even if it's their staffer get to know their staffers right because then you'll have an open communication um but through your state association you'll find so for instance if you pick up the phone right now and call the fdc or call cms you might be on hold for a while right so if you talk to your state association you talk to naspa um, they talk to us. Um, we can call directly um, the folks who are making these decisions in D.C. and pass that directly on. Good example of that, you know, uh, Mr. Bedoya, who was just confirmed as an FTC commissioner. We supported him through the nomination process. We're good friends with him. You know, we sent him our statement um, today. There's actually a policy statement coming out from the Federal Trade Commission on how they use PBMs, use rebates and fees um, to exclude lower cost drugs from patients. Um, we passed the statement right on to them. Um, and he has it today uh, to make his statement, his opening remarks too. So we can pass those concerns directly on to the folks who are making these decisions. But I say great first step is join your state pharmacy and pharmacist association, get involved obviously um, in elect with knowing your elected officials. Um, but you know, I don't think we could stay on the sidelines anymore. That's not a, that's not a good excuse anymore. So I think definitely getting involved, but I think that's where we go. Um, we could have a, a lot large conversation about this, but I'll stop now because I could keep going. <laughs> but if they want to know more, you know, check us out on pharmacist.com. <laughs> yes, thank you. And thank you for um, for plugging the, the website because I was just going to mention uh, more information on pharmacist.com, pharmacist, and then um, the seniorcarepharmacies.org, which is the SCPC 
I want to thank you, Alan, for coming back uh, so soon and being um, a, a voice and a light um, to the changing of our industry and the transformation of pharmacy. It's so necessary to keep us going. And um, I want us to be successful together. Um, I want to see pharmacists thrive. I don't want to see them burn out. I don't want to see them saying, I can't believe I spent $180,000, $250,000 on you know, my farm day and now I don't want to do it anymore. Like that's so disheartening to me when I hear that. I want them to be excited about the profession of pharmacy and what they're bringing to the table. Um, but thank you, Alan, for participating. Thank you, uh, Michael, for participating. And a shout out to both of your organizations. We will have um, in the show notes links to the bill as well as uh, LinkedIn uh, connections for both of our contacts. And in just closing, Alan, uh, last statement to our listeners of how best to support uh, this specific uh, legislation as well as their own politicians in their communities and then also the Senior Care uh, Pharmacy uh, Coalition. Sure. Well, for starters, I echo everything that Michael said about getting involved. It's just, it's, it's, it's crucial. For long-term care pharmacies in particular, and it's not unique, but it is a particular uh, consideration. Most policymakers have no idea what you do. And they are familiar with retail pharmacies. They've been in retail pharmacies. They have a general sense of what retail pharmacies are like. They do not have a clue what a long-term care pharmacy is like. The most important thing you could do in, in terms of developing relationships with local federal local officials and federal officials and their staffs, I echo that point as well, is to invite them to your pharmacy. The single most important thing we have seen at SCPC that impacts our ability to influence policy is that a member of Congress has been in a long-term care pharmacy. So that's kind of number one. Number two, similar to Michael's advice, I would encourage all of you that are not SCPC members to think about it if from the pharmacy perspective, not from the pharmacist's perspective. Pharmacist's perspective is very important. Organizations like APHA, you know, and, and others, uh, you know, represent those interests, including consulting pharmacists through ASCAP. But pharmacies as a business, especially in long-term care, often are different because they are not necessarily owned by pharmacists. And so that's the role that we play. And I would encourage you to consider that as well. Thank you both once again for being part of the PBM Reform podcast series. This has been an absolute um, honor to have you both on and speaking to our pharmacists that are out there. Pharmacists, please reach out to these organizations and ask questions of how to get involved. I can't echo loud enough um, Alan's suggestion. We've been talking about tours of your pharmacy operation, regardless of your specialty, compounding, senior care focused or community, the education that you will provide by taking them through um, your organization and walking them through uh, the pharmacy and describing what you do for the, for the community is eye-opening to them. And then they'll be like, wow, like I didn't realize that it was this complex, especially that old, um, you know, we, we hear it from the community world where they're saying it's, it, you know, come back in 20 minutes and I'll have your prescription ready. And why? Well, there's a, I'm going to make sure you're not going to die, you know, from taking this medication. That's why it's like, there's so much complexity that, that they may not. And I think if we open their eyes to it, once again, I think they're going to be more supportive. So I thank you both for being part of this. And I, I can't wait to welcome you, either of you back at, at any time that you want to help amplify 
the voice of our pharmacist and uh, and legislation that's going to impact our uh, our pharmacists, but more importantly, um, our community and in our in our nation. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate it. Yes, thanks for having us on. PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.